Hey, it's me. Your website. This is kind of awkward, but... Are you embarrassed of me? I mean, you don't show me off anymore or tell anybody about me. Worst of all, I know I have so much to offer you in helping you to find the best talent, to seducing your ideal customers, and articulating what your brand stands for. Huck Finch can help us. They specialize in crafting websites that solve business problems and are easy on the eyes. On top of that, they knock out websites in under 60 days and their pricing is transparent, so there's no sticker shock. Give me the makeover I deserve. Learn more at HuckFinch.com because an ordinary website just isn't enough. Welcome to Life on Brand, where builders and breakers share how they live life on their own terms. As always, the show is brought to you by the Hug Finch boys, Matt and Hyde. Check us out at hugfinch.com. Again, that website is hugfinch.com. And also, subscribe to the show because you know you want to. All right, let's jump right in. We're here today with Pete Baker, Director of Brand, Creative, and Digital Strategy at Duo Security, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Before Duo, he ran his own brand studio, established his own photography business, uh, where he's been featured in Travel and Leisure, Rolling Stone, and others. And he also has a much better beard than I do. So, uh, Pete, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your beard is definitely way better than mine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were just going to drive home that mine is terrible. Uh, <laughs> Combined, though. Yeah. we Our two beards might right, get us there. Right. Yeah. Diving right in, we... Uh, kind of mentioned as duo, that's maybe how you're you're known, at least in Ann Arbor and certainly outside now because of some of the publicity that's come along with the success there. Uh, but you're maybe because of that primarily known as, as a brand guy. But since your college days, it seemed like you've known that you had a love of photography and design sort of right from the start. Did a passion for one or the other kind of come first or were they always attached at the hip for you? So I, I actually started out uh, in school, I'd, my entire life, I was under the assumption and plan to be an architect. Uh, my dad was a is a timber frame builder, built two of the houses that I grew up in, and I had always you know expected and and wanted to be an architect. I was always fascinated with architecture and physical design. In college, I got about halfway through an uh, architecture degree and kind of realized like how long it was going to be before I saw anything that I created, yeah. you know, manifest in reality. And graphic design, like I started, I was, I'd always been into computers too, uh, mostly video games early on with like Commodore 64 and stuff like that. But <laughs> just to be able to play the games, you have to have some level of uh, computer aptitude, right? Yeah. And so in college when I was getting a little tired of the, I, I always loved the physicality of, of architecture and like building the models and all that stuff. But I also just loved messing around on the computer and graphic design was sort of the nice in-between. It was like Photoshop and Illustrator were sort of huge. I was doing a lot of uh, Flash and Shockwave stuff to, just to date myself there. Um, <laughs> OG stuff right there. Yeah, all that technologies. Yeah. Yeah. Putting it all on zip drives. And, uh, but that kind of thing, like I was able to experiment with graphic design in ways I couldn't experiment with architecture. You know, I could build models and stuff, but I couldn't really make things yeah. happen. Graphic design, I could get posters printed. I could make album covers and stuff like that. So design really kind of came first in the design and photography thing. But when I switched, when I moved to the art school at uh, University of Michigan, I, I started doing both, partly because I, I sort of realized how beneficial they each were to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, composition and photography and composition and design share a lot. But, you know, how much design do you see out there that has photography is like a crucial element of it. And so being able to like do photography and just having an eye for photography made my design work better and vice versa. And so they really just kind of became part of the same thing for me. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but for you personally, how is photography and design the same kind of mention mm-hmm. that they, they helped each other? But how are they the same and how are they different? Maybe even just as 
your level of enjoyment or what you get out of each of them? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest difference is, you know, design is inherently a communication art, right? Like, if you're not trying to say something in design, like literally get some point across some, you know, calendar event or communication or phrase or whatever, then it's basically art, right? right. You're making a really cool looking thing <laughs> that people can interpret however they want. There's very little, there should be very little interpretation in graphic design. Yeah. You, you have something that people, some information that you need to get across. Yeah. And if it doesn't get across, the design is kind of a failure, right? Right. Photography doesn't really have that unless you're doing, you know, strict commercial fashion or something like that. Yeah. It's a lot more sort of free to be both a sort of a technical art and just a fine art. And so I was like that part about it. Yeah. The best parts though, are when they get to sort of merge you get to use both sides of it. So. Very cool. Do you have a, a Sophie's choice moment? If you, if you had to get rid of one or the other, would, would you be able to choose? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I will probably get into it, but like when I was freelancing, you know, I, I did both quite a bit and design was probably the, the majority of the work and photography was always the favorite of mm-hmm. the work. At times I would be doing more photography than design and I'd start to hate photography. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's like whichever one that you're doing too much of, whichever one that is like becoming the job yeah. You sort of look at the other one, you're like, that. it's more fun when I'm just making random posters for random bands versus doing all these headshots for a bunch of corporations. <laughs> then you stop doing that and you're doing photography for random bands or something and doing designs for corporations. And so I wouldn't be able to pick. It's whichever one I'm doing the least of. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good safe answer for yourself <laughs> too. So uh, we had kind of talked before and found out we grew up in this same little yeah. Lenaway County um, in Southeast Michigan. So rarely do we get a chance to uh, bring that up on the podcast. Rarely right. uh, does anyone have a clue where I'm talking about <laughs> Right, that. And right now our audience is completely uh, lost. But to frame it a Blissfield, little bit. Blissfield, what up? <laughs> the, our whole target audience in Blissfield. <laughs> but it is a small town. And because of that, uh, just curious to know, like, how did growing up in a small town uh, I grew up in Adrian, the metropolis of yeah, Lenawee County, so huge I can't relate to, to Yeah, exactly. Uh, but how did that influence your path into these worlds, if if at all? How did you kind of get introduced? It's not a booming art scene no, uh, by any means. Not a really a creative community at all. Right. I mean, architecture helped a lot. Like there was definitely a creative outlet there. But really, I mean, I got bored a lot you know, imagination sort of filled the gaps. Yeah. Right. And like I did every random ass club you could do in high school, like French club and ski club and all that stuff, just to sort of pass the time. Yeah. We didn't have a, a great art. I actually in middle school, I had a great art teacher in middle school, uh, Mrs. Tuckerman. Mm-hmm. If she's listening, she's great. <laughs> it was the most multidisciplinary art class you could ever expect, especially for like sixth, seventh and eighth grade. We did glass etching, acid etching. We did uh, slip casting. We did uh, stained glass making, everything you could hope for. So, I mean, it was just like wildly disparate. And then in high school, straight into like nothing but painting and ceramics, just boring, you know, same stuff every other school does. But like middle school was, was astounding, right? Like to be able to do that kind of level of different stuff every day was was really sort of inspiring and I didn't even think of it at the time but I think that really just made me interested in making anything you know just anything you could produce anything you could do yourself we kind of got to do and so that that helped a lot once I was in high school then it was really like I'm on my own and (laughs) just sort of Calvin and Hobbes style like inventing worlds in my head all day long yeah was pretty much all there was yeah it is interesting. Like, I think that is the benefit you do get from being in a small, like mm-hmm. you really sort of have to be creative in like sometimes not artistic ways, but creative about what you do with your time. Yeah. And uh, not to date ourselves any further, but like video games were a thing, but not a thing like they are now right. as an outlet. Right. So I think there wasn't, yeah, there, I mean, it, this was pre internet, pre cell phone. There weren't, there weren't sort of niches to lose yourself in. And so you kind of had, like, I didn't have the ability to find a, a groove, really, or find a find a crew that was just, like, my crew. It was, like, I pretty much had to hang out with everybody from every group. Like, 
I wasn't really a jock, but I also wasn't a stoner, but I could hang out with both of them because yeah. what else am I going to do, right? And so I got to sort of see all the angles, I guess, and sort of connect some of those dots between different groups of people and, and all that stuff. So I think that in a lot of ways was kind of nice because I didn't, I didn't really know who I was until I sort of left and had some more, I guess, options yeah. available. So I was just kind of like this empty vessel for for 18 years in <laughs> Little Blissfield. Like, who knows? You know, I remember getting MTV in like fifth grade. And just like, damn, this is interesting. Yeah. But I couldn't identify with anybody, you know, because right. they, they weren't part of my real life, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's really cool to, to kind of hear, hear about that and the similarities. And I'm sure while they might not be literally in Blissfield, um, some, some people have similar backgrounds coming up in smaller places, yeah. uh, kind of searching for that. That same thing. Kind of getting down a little bit further down the path, you started your own design and branding studio, ran that uh, Elevated Works, you ran that and then started, looked like the photography studio came about uh, this hand in hand thing about the same, same time. As you developed that, and I think you spent some time in the Bay Area, kind of that period of your life building that, what led you to want to start your own studio and kind of do your own thing versus other opportunities I'm sure you had? I had a a couple of very brief jobs out of college, random shit in Chicago. I worked for a worked in the basement of a guy's house, uh, making the website for an interlocking foam flooring company. That was weird. I lasted about <laughs> six weeks there. Spent about three weeks at Blue Cross Blue Shield designing forms. And that was weird. But then I got hooked up with a, a small startup, just a few other people doing it was a it's called catalyst it was a commercial real estate listing website like zillow but for commercial real estate mm -hmm. and that was really like i was sole designer sat next to the programmer the sole programmer sat next to the sole database guy sat next to the ceo so that that was really my sort of first foray into basically doing everything related to design as well as like web production i had sort of taught myself web programming yeah. while in school because there wasn't really a program for that in art school. And, and the web was kind of new and I just really dug it. And like, like I said, flash and shockwave, like if you want to get that stuff out there. What I loved about graphic design and websites, especially and photography was the ability to basically do it all yourself. You could publish things yourself. It was the dream of like self-publishing, right? Yeah. I had, you know, one of the first photo blogs early on where I was posting stuff daily, you know, scanned film every day, doing the stuff for, for Catalyst. It was like, I'm typing words into a text file and then people on the other side of the country are able to see this website that I made, right? So all that stuff was just really inspiring. Just be like, it's sort of the, the maker dream of yeah. mm -hmm. manifesting something from your, from your brain. At Catalyst, it was great because nobody else there had a clue how to do what I was doing. So I, I did, you know, the logo design, I did the website design, I did all of our advertising. You know, it was a small, super small startup, and we needed to do all that stuff basically to make us look legit. We were not legit. We were like four guys literally in a closet <laughs> at this real estate company in Chicago. But we looked substantial. We looked like we were, yeah. you know. We knew what we were doing. Yeah, I think that's when I was like, this this ability for design and imagery and messaging to make an illegitimate collection <laughs> of, of ragtag people in this closet seem like a legit contender. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So I spent about three years there. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, she had moved out to California. I decided to follow her out there, and while I was in Chicago, I'd started doing a lot more photography. Just on the side and this photo blog that I started, it was uh, treemeat.com. At the time, it sort of taken off. I was pretty big on Flickr, again, dating myself. Um, <laughs> but like I started getting a lot more sort of jobs from that, just, you know, shooting bands, did a lot of album covers. The album covers, you know, I would also mention my design work and be like, oh, can you do the whole thing? So I'd shoot the photos, I'd do the design work, then it would turn into a website forum and then all that kind of thing. And it was just like, making these bands look legit. Yeah. So photography started to become more, more what I was known for outside of the work that I was doing at this startup. So I decided to move out to California and just kind of dive into all that. 
but you know, design paid, right? Design was commercially viable. Yeah. Photo was haphazard. And so sort of went freelance and, and started doing design work and website stuff for a bunch of different companies. I lived down the street from Cliff Bar's headquarters. I did their website. Luna Bar was the sister company. I did their website. I did the first website for uh, Tesla before that. Did you really? Before that mattered. Before anyone knew <laughs> yeah. who Tesla was. Yeah. Everyone now is like, oh shit, you did Tesla's was yeah. No, it didn't. It was not a big deal then. It was just yeah. this random company that hadn't shipped anything yet. And the whole time I was still doing, I was doing photography and I was starting to get more like magazine gigs and editorial stuff and, and being able to shoot for those. So I just kind of kept doing the, the sort of hustle for being able to do design, photography and website production as one person was really, you know, it kept me going for the better part of like 15 years. And, and it was, it was super fun. Cause you know, like what I was saying about getting bored with photography, if you do too much, I didn't do too much of anything. I was yeah. doing a little bit of everything and it was pretty cool. So then we decided to move to move back to Michigan. My wife and I were both from Michigan. We really liked the, the scale of Ann Arbor. We hadn't lived in the state in like 10 years. So we moved back here and I kept freelancing and I, I kept doing work for companies on the West coast, but I was living in, you know, Midwest rent. And it was great. Um, and one of my clients at the time, I started doing more work for companies in Ann Arbor. And one of them was uh, what is now Duo. So they were an early customer of mine as a freelancer before I came on full time. Yeah. What was that transition like, kind of moving to an in-house from your doing your own thing? It was tough. I mean, I my identity was built around me doing this thing that I'd been doing for so long. Like I had, I had a pretty big sort of countercultural bent to everything. Like I wasn't working for the man. I, you know, <laughs> I was off on my own doing whatever I wanted. I was working from a van on the West coast from time to time. I had a, a Treo, like the old Palm Pilot phone. <laughs> yeah. I could email from it and people didn't know where I was. And I, loved it. You know, I was like, I'm working, I'm in my office, I all that shit. And so coming in house, there, there's always been sort of a stigma around like in-house design. And so my, my sort of, you know, promise to myself was not just to, to do something good at this company, but to actually try to dispel that stigma. Yeah. And it, it was tough, like just the, the sort of self-identity change coming in in-house. But what I liked about it early on, I had been working you know, on a contract basis for so many different companies. And I would always regret something I did for them, but I would never have an opportunity to go back and address it. Yeah. You know, the best part about websites <laughs> is they're like fluid. You can always change them. You know, there's no print deadline. It doesn't ship. Right. You can always go back and adjust it, but I couldn't do that for these companies. You know, I probably could. I still had the logins. And stuff, <laughs> it wasn't like they were going to pay me to go fix, you know, yeah. go fix something that only annoyed me. Yeah. So coming like in-house was kind of a cool opportunity to like feel some real ownership over something, both from just the ability to kind of like marinate on a project, revisit something later, move kind of quickly on something and come back to it and, and all that. So, so that, that helped a lot. But then the, the desire to make people change their notion of what in-house design was like. In and, you know, I, I don't mean it too pejoratively, but like for a long time in design school, in-house design agencies were, were where you did like, you know, the real creative work in-house was formulaic. It's like what I did at Blue Cross. I'm designing right. forms, you know, I'm storing my designs in triplicate because of insurance regulations, like just the sort of cranking out stuff that follows a style guide that you have nothing to do with and all that. Yeah. That's really not the, the situation anymore with in-house. There's, there's so much more of a movement for especially startups to kind of bring design and, and brand and messaging and storytelling in inside because they, they move too quick to, to outsource all that stuff. They move, you know, things, things change quickly. You know, external agencies can be crazy expensive and you're going to spend just as much time explaining stuff to them as it would take to just do the thing if you just hired the people. And frankly, designers, you can get two designers for every engineer in a startup. Yeah. I, I go dollar to dollar for a couple designers over a half a dozen more engineers. <laughs> yeah. So 
Yeah, we could probably talk a whole, whole yeah. episode about that. So, because your your Ann Arbor is sort of part of Ann Arbor's first unicorn, air quotes, <laughs> whatever that ultimately means to everyone. What it, what did that mean to you, and what was it like to be sort of a part of that, especially in a community that hadn't really seen that type of you know success, Silicon Valley type success uh, before? And reflecting back on it, like what it what did it look like? Did it, did it feel a certain way? Did it mean anything in particular? Yeah, I mean it's it's still kind of surreal. So I I've been doing sort of contract where I was basically design advisor to Duo when it was just a, a few people. And I helped them sort of pull together like the first pitch decks and, and uh, mock-up of the product because it wasn't working yet. So we had this PDF that you click through really quick to make it seem like it's, it's working. Yep. Uh, and a pretty rudimentary logo and helped them name the company, which at the time wasn't even Duo because it was just a, you know, they, they had their own ideas about it. We came up with something and they just had to move quickly. Yeah. Later, when I came on full time, it, it was after a couple jobs that didn't go so great. And I was like, God, I'm sick of this freelancing thing. And it was like <laughs> Doug Song, our CEO, is like he could smell it in the air. He's like, and he pounced. He's like, Pete, we need you to come on full time. I was like, all right, let's talk about it. So I came in on, on full time and, and really like needed to rebrand the whole thing. You know, we, we started off as, as this company trying to look like one of the big security companies, trying to look like a established player, doing what everyone else had done for credibility. And really the, what got me to come on full time was the philosophy of, of the company doing security in a different way and being given the freedom to do the brand of the security company in a very different way too. Long story short, I came on, um, we had, I think, 12 or 14 people at the time. I was the only designer working on any of the marketing, messaging. We did product design. We had a UX designer that was uh, putting together a lot of the product, but that was it, right? And so it was, it was sort of like I was freelancing, doing everything to make this company seem legit. Fast forward six years and the company is 750 people. Cisco buys us for a couple billion dollars. And now it's like sudden validation for everything that we were like kind of taking a risk on before. Right. Yeah. We weren't, we didn't come off like a typical security company. Information security is a pretty fearful industry. It's a lot of kind of FUD, like fear, urgency, and despair. And nobody really likes it, even though it sells. Right. We went a whole different way. And the whole time, we were just this little company in Ann Arbor and like people liked our approach. We were selling pretty well, but it still was kind of like, are we doing this right? Like, yeah. is this working? And then suddenly <laughs> all the validation in the world that, yeah. that we were doing it right and it worked. So, yeah. but as far as like the whole unicorn thing in Michigan, I mean, that we've been, we've talked about it for years that, you know, Michigan has the right sort of confluence of a lot of things. And it's just going to take one of those companies kind of breaking out for especially Ann Arbor to really sort of be on the map as, you know, not the next Silicon Valley. I hate that yeah. phrase because there's yeah. a million other, right. you know, tech hubs in, in the, in the world, but like Ann Arbor's college towns in general have that sort of great mix of culture and identity and scale and intelligence coming out of you know those those universities, that it's just a matter of time until something breaks through, and, and we were the we were the first one to break through, which was very cool. But yeah. really, it's more exciting about what's what's going to happen after this. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, we we talk about it all the time about how Anwar has all the resources that you talked about, and um, nothing pisses us off more than kind of like the brain drain that happens mm -hmm. in the state of Michigan, let alone Ann Arbor, and that it should and could be a viable place to come and create a awesome business and awesome brand like Duo. I mean, we had a lot of people that were really skeptical, especially when we were hiring and like recruiting, that we would be able to find the people we needed here. And like the engineering pool was pretty obvious, like coming out of U of M. Nobody thought that I was going to be able to hire. You know, we've got a 20 person creative team now that does video and motion graphics produces our website web development web design we've got journalists on staff and content marketing for us illustrators i mean it's a pretty it's bigger than some of the design agencies in town and it was 
a lot of people didn't think we'd be able to hire for that here. And there's actually a really large creative community. And to your point, the brain drain in some ways played into our favor because everybody gets fed up with wherever they're from after long (laughs) enough, right? And they go somewhere else. And then they actually realize those places were were not so bad, right? Just like I did. I moved to Chicago. I moved to the West Coast. Started hankering for a smaller town experience again. Wasn't going to move to Blissfield because there wasn't anything to do there. But Ann Arbor was kind of perfect in scale and opportunity. And it's way more cosmopolitan than it has any right to be. So you, you actually start to find a lot of people that are way more senior, way more, way, way more experienced in their career, kind of coming back to some of these places when they want to have kids or raise a family or start their own business or something like that. So we actually had pretty good luck finding a lot of people that were really good at this stuff. It may have been a lot harder in some other places because we we sort of had the the pick of the litter, right? Like we were the hot up and comer in a fairly small pond with a pretty good collection of resources around, right? Like if we were on the West Coast, it would have been much harder. We would have been hiring the you know, the people that spend two years at every company, right? Yeah. The Dropbox, Pinterest, <laughs> Facebook cycle. Yeah. And it would have been really hard to, you know, slice someone out of that. We've got, you know, on my team, almost everyone's been there. I mean, we've got new hires, but everybody that was there six years ago is still there. We've had one person leave and go to a company next door, but otherwise it's the same team intact. And like that knowledge base that's built up there is invaluable. Yeah, yeah. like we always kind of like to remind people that, there's nothing wrong with being quote unquote the big fish in a small pond kind of thing. There's there's advantages yeah. to it. One of my tattoo artists, like Zulu, uh, Leo Zulueta, mm-hmm. he's just known as the godfather of tribal. And he moved to Michigan because one, his go girl, his girlfriend is from here. But two, he just realized like I can stay in LA, I can get business, but I'm a dime a dozen there, even though like I came up with this style. When I can come to Ann Arbor, like no yeah. one else does what I do. Yeah. So people are gonna and people want to to be tattooed by me, they're going to come out here and it's going to be a lot better collaboration because I'm going to get people who actually want a Leo Zulueta tattoo. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, likewise, I mean, not to compare Duo's creative team to a hot shit tattoo artist, mm-hmm. but sort of the same thing. Like we've got people who want to work here and not, not just because it's, it's a place that's hiring, right? And sort of going back to that in-house stigma, you know, a lot of that stigma comes from that sort of cycle of people just you don't spend long enough somewhere to own something and everyone on our team has been here long enough to feel some ownership over the brand and the production and all this stuff and it kind of makes for a lot of uh, variety to be had within the brand keep it from being stale i mean the only thing that's been consistent is our logo and our colors everything else has been on the table all along because we we need to keep it fresh we want to keep it fresh the last thing we want to do is a is turned into a production house of a bunch of designers who are here just to crank out templates. Yeah. That's not going to do us any good as as a company either. Yeah. Certainly not going to attract good talent. Either. Yeah, I was say, those designers won't won't be around too long, right? Yeah. Same as right. same as you. Right. Hopefully, they last <laughs> longer than three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, given your ridiculous, impressive title here of director of brand, <laughs> creative, and digital strategy, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've been using the word brand a lot in this uh, conversation for the last half hour. So we kind of want to ask you, like, you know, when people think of brand, they think of immediately go to the logo, mm-hmm. usually something very visual like that. But but we we three know it's more than than that. So what what does a brand mean to you? Yeah, I give a we we have a onboarding session like every month for new hires that we call Culture Day, and it's you know a talk from Doug about the history of the company talk from me about the brand and what it all means. And it always starts out with dispelling the notion of what people think a brand is. It's not, it's not the logo. I'll, I'll publish the, the slide deck. So you know what I'm talking about, but like, I, I, would, I always put up the logo from uh, coming to America of McDowell's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> They've got the golden arches. We got the golden arcs. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if that's all it was like that would, you know, that'd be enough to convince people that this is McDonald's, not McDonald's, right? There's, there's more to it than the logo. It's not the product either. You know, there's plenty of products that are just as good as the one we all buy, but you know, there, there's something more to it. That's making us buy Mountain Dew instead of Mountain Spring or whatever. Yeah. You know, 
and it's not the identity system or any of that stuff. That's for the design nerds to, to geek out on. Brand really comes down to like the gut feeling we have about a company or a service or a person or, or anything. And that gut feeling comes from like way more intuition than any logical understanding we have about these companies. And, you know, the trust that you, that you place in a company comes from a lot of experiences, not any one statement or ad campaign or anything or website or anything. It's from constantly sort of interacting with this, this company and this brand and having a positive reaction every time you do, then that logo just becomes a symbol for that. It's just a bookmark for all those experiences you've had. And that can be, you know, how you interact with the product. It can be how you interact with people and customer service and any of that. We put a lot of emphasis on our sales team, not being sort of the typical heavy handed sales process. You know, we, we put as much attention into our contract negotiations being a good experience as our website and our product. And that kind of stuff really matters because you have those kind of personal interactions as much as you do any of the, the product stuff, right? And so like being in Ann Arbor, Singerman's is a huge example of like putting customer service like above everything else. Yeah. Helps when you sell $20 sandwiches <laughs> to be really generous with everything else. But like, yeah. I worked at, at Zingerman's in college for a little while, just as a like a line cook making mm-hmm. sandwiches. And even just me, I only worked there like six or nine months, but I had th- so many training sessions on customer service there. And it was always about like empowering anybody who worked there to just make the customer happy. If they drop their sandwich, don't go run it up to a manager and see if you can replace it. Just get them a new sandwich. It's yeah. fine. Uh, if they want to try something from behind the counter, go ahead. Let me, we got more of that stuff. Like, just make every experience they have a positive one. And those kind of notions, like they build up really slowly, but they're dispelled super quickly. Yeah. You have one shitty experience with a company, and all that trust, all that charisma that's been built up is just gone immediately. So we put a lot of emphasis on that because you're right. Like. People think of the brand as the logo and the colors and the style and all that stuff. And, and they, they think that it's just the, you know, design team's job to own the brand. It's not, it's every single person, it's every interaction you have with any representative of that company from the product to the people to the process and all that. You talked about the Zairman's like putting customer service at the very topic and that's like their, their guidelines. Like what are the kind of the guidelines for? For Duo, you mentioned that like, you don't want yourself people to be heavy-handed. Like, what is is it like the company values, or what, what is it that helps you, you know, create those like uh, those lanes? Yeah, yeah. We we, I mean, we put a lot of emphasis early on into. I guess the end result was to to try to make sure that our external brand and our and our internal brand were the same. Right, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. I always kind of joke about like the brands of a hedge fund. Right. Like they want, they want to say that they're you know helping you with your retirement and putting your kids through college and stuff. And that's their external brand. But everyone knows their internal brand is Wolf of Wall Street. Right. Mm-hmm. Bunch of coked up 20 year olds on a bus. <laughs> full of hookers. Like they just don't match up. And so it's not an authentic brand. Right. So our internal values at Duo were just as important as anything external that we talked about. Our values were always easy, effective and trustworthy. And internally, that was, you know, being kind to each other, uh, learning together, you know, all, all those kind of things. We, we have them laid out and printed everywhere and we bring them up every time. Externally, you know, easy, effective and, and trustworthy over and over and over again. So that informs our product experience, that informs our hiring experience, and we reinforce it constantly because, I mean, when you're hiring as many people as we were, as quickly as we were, it starts to get, you know, repetitive for anyone that's been there, but it, you have to repeat that mm-hmm. stuff. Because anyone in marketing knows, like, yeah. until you're bored with it, nobody yeah. else has heard it. Yeah. And so we have to keep repeating that stuff over and over again and cite examples and really put whatever gets sort of tracked at your company is what you're indicating people care about. And so we always put a lot of emphasis on public appreciation of somebody doing something useful or beneficial or kind or, or any of that stuff. And that would be, that was built into every meeting and every talk that we gave at the company. Yeah. It's really great to talk about 
that internal and external brand should be the same. And if you want to be able to have your customers experience it, you need to start from with, within. Yeah. So that kind of gets a little bit into the, our next thing, which is really about brand and culture and how they relate. We, we like to think of them as two sides of the same coin. So um, how do you see brand influencing culture at Duo and vice versa? I mean, tremendously. Like what I was saying about uh, sort of what attracted me to Duo, and none of this was really defined then, right? But there was a philosophical notion of the security industry is doing everything wrong, right? And and that, you know, that struck me as like, you know, a bit of a countercultural yeah, yeah. jab, even though we were going to be the nice guys, that was counter to what most of the security industry was like. It was, it was, you know, it's a pretty um, cynical industry, right? And, and some of that's necessary. The, the sort of every, any flaw in a security product is kind of a fatal flaw. Any, any flaw in a, a security protocol is a fatal flaw. All it, takes, it doesn't matter how small the backdoor is. It's a backdoor into everything. Mm-hmm. And so that mentality is correct when it comes to what the products do, but it's terrible when it manifests as like people's behavior and personality. Yeah. And that sort of took over the entire industry. And it's like, we can sell to the base instincts of fear and stuff all the time. And then, then that makes everybody defensive and kind of looking at everyone sideways and not trusting each other. And we didn't want to be like that. We didn't, we didn't feel like that. We didn't want the product to be like that. Some of it was being in the Midwest and just sort of like, we've all been through a winter together. Like we're in this shit together. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, we survived together. So philosophically, we just sort of took a different approach to solving the security product problem. And that manifested as well in how we talked about ourselves, how we marketed ourselves, how we designed the product, putting users at the center rather than the buyers, really. You know, the classic knock against enterprise software is like the only people that buy it are the ones that don't have to use it. Yeah. We wanted to make sure we were building software for the people that had to use it so that more people were willing to apply that security in more places. That also had to become part of our ethos in how we talked about the product. We can't, we can't have a great, you know, frictionless UI and product experience and then be over here scaring the shit out of everybody, right? If, if it's a benefit to the end user, it's a benefit to the admin and all those people that are buying it. And it's a benefit to the entire industry for us to be upfront and honest and, you know, honest brokers in what our product does and doesn't do, what problems it does and doesn't solve, and not try to pretend that it's like a panacea or, or perfect, you know, solution to everybody's problem. We had to be honest about it. You know, we had to be authentic. Like it does this, it doesn't do this. We will never promise over, over promise under deliver yeah. every time. Right. Yeah. And even in the marketing, you know, method, like when we started marketing ourselves, we, we stayed really lean. We didn't do a lot of advertising. We did a lot of content marketing. We did a lot of like production of entertaining videos that got our point across. Doug likes to say we got we got big before we got loud, and that was sort of a another manifestation of our just appropriateness, I guess. You yeah. know, our authenticity, where it's like, you know, we I'm not sure if we even know what, that we're doing the right thing here. So let's let's validate it first before we start pronouncing it, right? Yeah, I, I love the way that you guys are able to personify these values into something like you just talked about, like authenticity, like that. That word, people seem to understand what it means, but how do you actually show authenticity and, mm-hmm. and trustworthiness? And you're saying, this is what we do, this is what we don't. Like a lot of companies will probably say they're authentic, but they would never do that next part of saying like, no, we can't tell people. Yeah. We, we don't do, people won't buy our product if we did that. No. Right. Yeah, I think Midwest tech companies need to take advantage of the cultural niceness here. <laughs> it's one thing I re- sort of realized when I was on the West Coast, like, just being from the Midwest, showing up to things on time astounds people in California. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. I would show up to a meeting a couple minutes early and, and it was like I was the, the hardest worker they'd ever they'd ever seen. That same level of just sort of like being an honest broker, being a casual person, being a you know, a nice person, the the sort of Minnesota nice, I guess, yeah. versus the Seattle cool, yeah. you know, that goes a long way when you're trying to be an authentic brand, right? Yeah. What we think is really cool too is that we, living in Ann Arbor, we interact with, with 
people and even not knowing that they were for Duo, we're like, you probably were for Duo. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you have a certain vibe yeah. that fits the, the brand. Yeah. You talked a little bit about, you know, initially this was Duo wasn't the original name and you had to re- rebrand to fit this, this personality and these values mm-hmm. that you really want to articulate. We, we see a lot of potential customers or people just wanted to rebrand just to rebrand. Or they, yeah. uh, so when do you think it's kind of an appropriate time for a company to really reconsider something like a rebrand or a rename? As early as possible. <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it early and then own that shit for as long as you can. Duo was originally named SCIO, S-C-I-O, because it sounded vaguely techie. Uh, we could own the URL, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is a big deal. Techie, yeah. And there's like a local, you know, there's a bit of local flavor to it. Sio uh, mm-hmm. Church Road, Sio Township. Yeah. But, you know, it's a confusing name. It's hard to spell. We just had to get it out the door, right? So later when we started, and it was, it was within like a year and a half or two years that we were talking about renaming the company. We were still only nine or ten people. So it wasn't nearly as big a deal. We didn't even have, you know, major customers yet. So the name was kind of like the thing that we had to figure out before we sort of took on the next big step of things. That was different than, so, so we, we renamed as Duo and we had a different logo then. Then when I came out full time, we, re, we rebranded again, but not rebrand the name, just redid the identity, redid the logo and um, stuff like that. Renaming is a way bigger deal than rebranding, right? But the name for us mattered so much more because it, it had to communicate both clearly some indication of what we did. And the product at the time was two-factor authentication. Duo was a pretty good indication of that. But the symbology built up around Duo, the name, went a little deeper than that. It was two sides of the same coin. Yin and yang of security and usability was always something that we sort of held closely. You know, the, the more you secure something, often the harder it is to use. And we wanted to fight that notion. Mm -hmm. And so this yin and yang, this constant struggle between the black hats and the white hats was always sort of part of that. Uh, So it let us have some more symbology to it and make it more meaningful than just it was a convenient word available and, and all of that. The logo then coming later was much more about reproducibility and sort of technically technical feasibility and usage of the mark. But the logo at the time was, was before the current one was really sort of cliche. I, and I can say that cause I did that one too. <laughs> it was, it was a shield and keys and it was trying to, trying to fit in with all the rest of the security company sure. because we didn't realize yet how different we were or how different we wanted to be or strategically how, how to position ourselves separately. So all of that, you know, as big a change as it was, it all happened within like the first two or three years of the company. That, I think, really came, if we had done that five years later, it would have been a much bigger problem, a much bigger project, a much bigger change that we would have had to manage better. And we wouldn't have, we would, couldn't have been as fluid as we were with it then. But that only happened then and was able to stick around because we put so much effort into figuring out who we were so that when we did finally land on something, the name actually mattered less than the rest of the, of the brand. Did the imagery, did the, the style fit the philosophy? And then the name, we can make that work for everything else. So we had a bit of that symbology that was convenient, but you make, you make a name mean something. You make a a brand means something through everything you do after. So really like trying to do that kind of stuff early on so that you can spend the next five, 10, 15 years building meaningfulness into whatever you did early on with the name is, is super important. Logos and stuff, again, just become a bookmark. If you've got all the money in the world to get that logo out there, you can make that logo mean all that other stuff. But the name is such a crucial factor in that that you got to spend so much time sort of building the meaning into. So earlier, the better. But if it's wrong, it doesn't matter how long it's been around. You change that shit. It's, it's time to go. If it's, if it's doing disservice to everything you're trying to say, if you've got this, you know, look at some of the other security companies. They're all eagle talons and side eyes and things on fire and stuff. And if you're over here trying to be like, we're the you know approachable, usable security company, and your logo is literally like a knife through a, a padlock. It's time to get rid of that shit. Right? Yeah, 
you know, we can be, we can sit here and talk to you all day about all this brand and what it means. And, but, um, were there like kind of moments or books or things that you had and like in your life where that really codify like these beliefs that you have about what a brand really is and the, the value? Marty Niemeyer's books are hugely influential on us. Uh, that's, that's where I, I get a lot of that sort of talk track of uh, what a brand is and is not. Uh, I'll be the first to admit, like, he sort of set the tone for a lot of this stuff. That's probably some of the biggest stuff. I think on a more contemporary level, it's hard to say because, like, all this stuff is so specific to the company. And so everybody's got these, like, brand principles and stuff. But it's also subjective. And you don't know if it's true until it's real. It, it can be really hard to pay too much attention to, like, everybody who knows everything yeah. about a thing you know it's it's so specific to the type of people running that company the type of company it is the type of audience so so yeah i think marty neymar is probably one of the best at just sort of the abstract notions of what a brand could and should be yeah. and everything else is time and place yeah so we'll, we'll let you off the branding uh, <laughs> philosophical hook for a moment yeah clearly i'm sick of talking <laughs> So we're ending out the section of the show called the slow burn, which was originally our version of rapid fire. But then we realized we didn't care how long anybody took to answer these questions. Nice. Rapid so fire did not capture our brand. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No, no. Answer them as slow or as quickly as you'd like. So the first one you kind of mentioned, uh, don't have a, a ringer answer for this. We're going to ask it anyway. How do you define success personally? I, I hate to cite Steve Jobs and right? <laughs> talk about it cliches but <laughs> i think he said something and i'm paraphrasing and butchering but it was like if you wake up and you're doing something you don't like doing for more than a week it's time to start doing something else i when i came on to duo i told him i'd give him two years right i was going to come i was going to help him look legit and <laughs> i was going to split and go back to what i was doing yeah. turns out i like it here i like doing this i like the team i was able to build and i've been here like over six years now there are certainly days where I don't like what I'm doing, but it rarely adds up to an entire week, right? And so I'd say that's that's the biggest marker of success. That's good. It's just not it's not yeah. eating what you have to do. Yeah. It's nice to have that like practicality yeah. to yeah. it. You're like, is it success? I'll, I'll give it seven days. And right. See how it's yeah. Going. yeah. Not every day is going to be good. Yeah. But if it's a string of shitty days, then you can start thinking twice. Yeah. But we're we're contractually and legally obligated to mention Steve Jobs in every episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, then check that one. We're out. talking about entrepreneurs, so yeah. it, must, it must be so. Yeah. The next thing is just describe a time when you experienced doubt, uh, whether it was when you were starting your own business, whether it's been a duo as you've done these things, could be about just being skilled enough as you're just getting started. Is there any kind of like doubtful moment that stands out to you? I mean, are are there any? Days that I don't <laughs> doubt everything I'm doing. The reason I brought up like validation duo and, and being bought and this whole sort of unicorn thing for a long time, like security industry was not my background. You know, it was always designed for various different companies. There was no industry specific background that I had other than design and web and all that. So I always had a bit of like imposter syndrome in the security space. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm pretty technical, but I am not as technical as you know, our, our labs people and, and, and some of the IT and especially the security people. They're all so close to the metal and like, I mean, really picking things apart in levels that I, I'm, I'm using this stuff to make other things. They're actually making those things yeah. that we use to make other things. So I always had this like level of imposter syndrome uh, in all this and that lasted a long it really frankly lasted until this year and i was like oh shit i guess i guess it worked but that kind of thing is is really pervasive i think in a lot especially designers we are not given and i don't mean this in you know a sad sack kind of way we're not often given the credit for the business impact that we have and some of that's because you know we don't for as good as we are at selling other companies we're not always great at selling ourselves and our worth and value because I think some of the best designers are also some of the most humble ones. And so there's always this level of like imposter syndrome that I think any designer is going to have unless you're working on like a design company or design software or something like that, because it's just not your thing. And so you're kind of 
you're hoping you're picking up on the right elements. You're hoping you're saying the right things. You're hoping you're not coming off like a total stooge <laughs> yeah. to everyone you're talking to that clearly knows more about this space yeah. than you do. So that that was a long running pervasive doubt in my, <laughs> in my time here. Yeah, I was obviously going to ask before you mentioned, it's like, when did that go away? Or like this, this year? No, <laughs> yeah. Actually, and not even that. It was, uh, so a few weeks ago, the biggest security conference uh, in the world, the RSA conference was in San Francisco. And I went out there for it and I've been going for six or seven years now. And I went out there and like duo was the hot topic there. And, <laughs> and I'm looking around and like, I see so many more companies starting to do things. I don't know if they're emulating us or, or the, the sort of notion of how to pitch and sell and design security is kind of starting to, to, to move towards where we've been doing it all along. But that, that was really, you know, the Cisco buying us wasn't, wasn't the validating thing for me. It was starting to see how everybody else not just is trying to, take our approach, but actually appreciates it too. Yeah. It's not just doing it because they want to sell the Cisco too. It's because it's actually a much better place to right. be mm-hmm. than yeah. just scaring the shit out of people yeah. all the time. Kind of a trailblazing aspect of, yeah. at least within the industry, especially. Yeah. It took seven years to figure out if it was the right way. So everyone take a deep breath. It yeah. might be a well. while. Yeah. From that self-doubt often comes from like either failures that we think might be coming or uh, ones that we actually experience. Is there a lasting lesson you've learned from failure in general or a specific one um, that comes out, assuming you failed maybe at least once at some point? Hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'd, I'd say the like introspection is a really you know, sort of difficult thing to sort of, you, you, can, you can get too introspective, right? Like you can self-doubt and overthink things a little too much, but having a, a point of view and sticking to that point of view and, and knowing that that point of view is like really your inherent opinion and feeling about how things should be. And then letting everything else sort of, you know, fall into place alongside that and not doing something that compromises that point of view. Sometimes you do, if you're, especially if you're freelancer, you're going to do some work for some places. You're like, this doesn't feel like me, but if it doesn't last forever, you know, you want to take their money and, do something better with it or whatever. But having a good sense of self and then sticking with that, like knowing that that's sort of who you are and what you want to be and making it known. And the the people that want to work with somebody like that will find you. And, and that kind of thing helps sort of cut through a lot of that. Yeah. The next questions are kind of around, maybe you can time and place these as much as you want. Like, the entrepreneurial side of, of your life, starting your own business, photography, branding studio, but also being a part of a startup uh, really early on that duos become now. Two sides of the same question. What's one thing you found surprisingly difficult kind of at the start of your businesses? Um, and one, one thing that was maybe surprisingly easy. So I, I thought that having had, you know, 13, 14 years of freelancing experience and running my own business, which was it's hard to say that's running your own business. You're, you're working for yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I had had like other contractors and I, you know, other people had worked for me in various capacities. I thought that I had management experience and I so did not. <laughs> and so uh, maybe some of my team will be listening to this, but like <laughs> I would say I was definitely overconfident in my ability to like run a team to, you know, both know, how and what we should be doing and how and how we're structured and how to inspire people and all that stuff. Like that has been my biggest learning experience in this hiring 20 people and trying to keep them, you know, inspired and confident that what they're doing is great. And, you know, all that stuff has been, there's a lot of the emotional side to that. It's like, you know, we're all, we're all creative people and we've got a lot of, you know, aspirations on the creative side. We have a lot of doubt on the production side. We got a lot of deadlines and shit to do and, you know, arguments to be had and critique to be delivered, hopefully constructively. But then there's also just the sort of being, I don't want to say responsible, but responsible for, for somebody's career. Right. And like, that is a whole nother level of imposter syndrome that I've, <laughs> yeah. that I've been working through for years. And, and it changed. I mean, I, I get thrown right back into it every, every few days where I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm responsible for this. 
and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Or I think I know what I'm doing and everybody else hopes I do. So let's just keep going that direction. Like making some decisions that may not be the right ones, but somebody's, you know, I got to make a decision, right? Yeah. That's the constant learning experience that I'm still uh, not on top of. No one cured that for you at the uh, security conference? No, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I still, the only validation I have is that most of my team is still here. Yeah, that's, so, that's pretty solid. Yeah, I all say. but one. That Sean, if you're listening, <laughs> son of a bitch. You ruined your, <laughs> you're in the perfect 100%. Yeah, uh, come on, Sean. <laughs> He's cool. <laughs> Kind of uh, for our, our curveball question now that usually catches people off guard a little bit is what's one song that captures you as a person knowing you've got some really chipped <laughs> bands uh, and the creative side? Man, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have sort of rotating obsessions right now. Harold Melvin, Wake Up is sort of on constant repeat. Yeah. Roy Ayers, Everybody Loves the Sunshine, sort of my, my jam when it's not sunny out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, someone asked me, someone came over to my house a while ago and asked me, why does it always feel like a 70s cop movie in here? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, like, I just kind of like that. I like background music. I like music that feels like a soundtrack. Yeah. I can't get much work done with lyrics. So I find yeah. a lot of stuff that yeah. sort of sets a, a vibe. Yeah. And cop soundtracks, I guess, are <laughs> where I'm at. Your, your personal brand, yeah. 70s yeah. cop soundtrack. Um, the next question, something that we do is uh, we allow the, the previous guest to ask the next guest a question. They sometimes know who that is, but oftentimes they have no idea. So the next, this question is uh, from Rishi at Underground uh, Printing. And he phrased this as, uh, if you're in an alternate universe and you had a doppelganger in that universe, what's the defining characteristic where you could tell the real Pete Baker <laughs> from the doppelganger Pete Baker? That's a good question. <laughs> right now, probably how much gray is in my beard. Because <laughs> that seems to be progressing rapidly. And so if that doppelganger wasn't like formed today, yeah. I'd be able to tell pretty quick that it wasn't me. <laughs> That's a good answer. So this is your, your chance to ask uh, whomever the next guest might be uh, a question for them of, you know, from the business owner perspective or just from the, the oh, life man. perspective. What's one question? Or a random doppelganger question. Yeah. yeah. We just want. build off that question forever. Yeah. Now. I can't come up with something that <laughs> clever, but I, you know, it's something that kind of comes up often, especially in, you know, design world. Like this is not a, this is not a, I guess, I don't know if you're talking to that many designers on all these podcasts, but like, this is not a job that has the sort of level of ascension that say an MBA, MBA does or med school or something like that. But people are drawn to it anyways. Like what's making you do this thing that you know is going to sort of top out at a certain level or is always going to be slightly disrespected or, or maligned, I guess, or, or that kind of thing. Yeah. Like what, what is it that's drawing you to this creative world that we're all so caught up in and kind of drives us all crazy at some point? Yeah, good question. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to bump our next guest to make sure that they're uh, designers so and we can use that. Yeah, I think, too, there's, there's versions of that, too, that can yeah, go out. Yeah. Or just like this thing that you've given your life to. Right, same goes What's for happening? anyone starting a yeah. company, too. Like, what yeah. is making you do this? Yeah. Dude, it's hard. Yeah. And it's going to be hard for a long time and it may or may not work. Yeah. yeah. But, but there's like a compelling force to that that I'm really interested in why, why different people do it. Yeah. So you, you survived the slow burn um, <laughs> and it's, we'll just say record time because it means nothing. Uh, so your reward, the reward that we can give out is just 30 seconds to plug anything that you want that you're working on or people or anything that you're interested in shouting out. Yeah. What's up, Blissfield? Another Blissfield. What's up, Blissfield? Yeah. So I've been on the, the board at the Ann Arbor Art Center for like four or five years now. And they have, so anyone local here probably doesn't even realize that there is a gallery at the Ann Arbor Art Center. It's been upstairs for a long time. Recently, they bought the building next door and plan to move the gallery downstairs. This is pretty like near and dear to me, not just being on the board, but also because exhibition. And being able to create a place for artists to show their work 
is the other half of the coin of creating this work. You know, we all create stuff and the, we, we're creating it to be seen, right? Yeah. And so anyone who has any interest or is local at all, uh, look up the, the Ann Arbor Art Center. Sometime next year, the gallery will be downstairs and we'll be launching a new and there are juried exhibitions all year long and you can submit work whether you're local or not. And the, the more national work that we can get in into this place, the better. So I'd love to see anybody from anywhere that's doing great work get it exhibited at the Ann Arbor Art Center. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. I love the Ann Arbor Art Center. I yeah. did a couple of like workshopping classes there. So yeah. it's a really great place. Yeah. yeah it's awesome super cool. Here. They do a, a huge range of stuff from exhibitions to events. And uh, they've got some of the best teachers of so many different things, comic book artists, digital art, even just tax taxes for artists and things like that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the reason I got involved was like, I want to make sure that Ann Arbor is a place where creative people can have careers, not just have a studio because they can't, you know, can't afford a studio anymore. Here. <laughs> yeah. But I want to make sure that, that creative people can find, you know, avenues for doing it as a profession, not just as a hobby. Yeah. Very so. cool. It's a great shout out. With that, Pete, you've kind of made it through the whole episode. Awesome. Uh, we've had a lot of awesome conversations with you, both uh, now on air and off air. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. And that's our episode, everybody. If you had a blast like we did, make sure to subscribe to the show. You're listening to it already. You might as well. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else. And hey, make sure to share all the love with the makers and breakers out there in your life. And thanks for listening and keep your life on brand. Life on Brand is a Hug Finch production. Make sure to check us out at hugfinch.com for all your branding needs. That website again is hugfinch.com. 